Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's Central Library. My name is Kate Powell. I am uh, on the board of directors and trustees here at the Pratt. Um, and on behalf of CEO Carla Hayden, who was so sad that she couldn't be here tonight, um, we, I want to welcome you all here to a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. Um, this is going to be a wonderful evening uh, as we welcome to Baltimore one of my very favorite authors, personally, uh, Mr. Wally Lamb. So before we hear from our special guest, uh, I just want to thank One Main Financial for sponsoring the Pratt's Writers Live series. Um, their generosity has, has allowed us to bring um, award-winning and best-selling authors like Wally to, um, to the Pratt so that our, our customers can meet and hear them for free, because that is what the Pratt is all about. Um, I should also mention, yes. Thank you. Um, Wally's new book, We Are Water, is being sold outside in the lobby by the folks from Greetings and Readings. If you haven't read it yet, it's a wonderful book. If you still need to pick it up, if you borrowed it from the library and it's so good that you want your own copy, um, please, please pick that up. He'll be signing books after the program. Um, and I should also mention, because I'm on the board, that it does actually, it, having book sales be high tells publishers that Baltimore buys books. So um, it helps, it does help us keep um, great authors like Wally Lamb um, here at the Pratt. And if you would like more information on upcoming author events um, at the Pratt Library, uh, visit our website, prattlibrary.org. Grab a copy of The Compass on the table on your way out or um, join us on Facebook or Twitter. Now, back to our very special guest. So obviously, I'm addressing a crowd um, of readers, people who really know how to enjoy a great book. Um, but I have to say, like, have you ever been in a situation where you're 20 pages into a book and you think, wait a minute, I've been, I've, I've been here before, I've read this before. And it's, you know, because for whatever reason, you just never really invested in the characters to the point where they became memorable. And then there are the novels on the other end of the spectrum that are so unforgettable that not only do the story and the characters stay with you, but you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you read those books. So for me, She's Come Undone, um, which Wally published in 1992, is that, is that kind of book. And for that book and for the books that followed, it's a friend on my bookshelf that I can take down and reread and in a way go back to that point in my life. So it it's, was the same for I Know This Much is True, which centers on identical twins, one of whom suffers from paranoid schizophrenia. And I should mention, I think we know that both of those novels were selected by Oprah Winfrey as one of her Oprah Book Club books. Um, and I know Wally's going to, we'll be talking about what it was like to get that call. Um, <laughs> and for many, and I have to admit, for me, it was an introduction to Wally Lamb and his, and his, and um, his career as a novelist. And I think, Wally, you've referred before to Oprah's selection, um, which came out five years after She's Come Undone came out, as, as winning the karmic lottery. Um, and that, you know, that really was a turning point in your career as a writer and, and, um, and in a way why we're all here tonight. So, um, and I know you're going to be talking about that later. Um, and then in quick succession came The Hour I First Believe, believed, in which Wally folded real-life events like Columbine, the Columbine Massacre, and the Iraq War into his storyline. And then, in a shift in style, um, was Wishing and Hopin', a short comical novel about a fifth grader uh, growing up in a Catholic school in 1964. So, in 
we are water, Wally returns to his roots. Um, the novel is set in a fictional town, the fictional town of, of Three Rivers, Connecticut, which is based on uh, his hometown in, in Norwich and some of the surrounding, uh, surrounding towns. And here again, Wally weaves in real-life stories. In this case, the 1963 Norwich flood uh, that killed five people. Um, and while I don't want to age you, but I think you've said that you were you were 12 at the time, so it you know may obviously made a big a big impression. Um, <laughs> so that was that storyline addresses same-sex marriage, African American art, the New York art scene, um, childhood incest, and you know a favorite uh, dysfunctional families. So I know we're, we're all excited <laughs> to hear more from Wally about We Are Water. So I'm going to stop there. Um, please uh, join me in welcoming, and I'm not kidding when I say the nicest author we have had at the Pratt Library, Wally Lamb. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Everybody here okay? Um, well, before I, uh, before I uh, give you my prepared remarks, um, I just wanted to speak off the cuff and say um, to Baltimore, and particularly the Pratt Library here, um, the Pratt Free Library, uh, how, how grateful I am to have been invited and to be here tonight. Um, I, since I've gotten here, uh, of course, I've seen what... Uh, what a splendid building uh, this is, uh, rich in history, uh, and also what exciting plans there are for this library. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to say uh, that I'm the lucky one here tonight. And um, I've, I think it's so cool that there is not only you know, the friends of the library, but the contemporaries, uh, you know, the, uh, the young people who have uh, you know, stepped up uh, to, to to help promote what is really uh, one of the most wonderfully democratic institutions here in the country. Um, uh, Jane was saying that um, one of the designs uh, was to have the library, the entrance, be on the street level as opposed to you know, those big long steps that, uh, uh, that people usually are used to with public libraries. And that, I think, says something uh, right there, you know, come on in. We'll make it easy for you, and we'll make it worth your while. So, yay libraries, and especially <laughs> yay the Pratt. Now, from what I hear, rock stars on tour have a hell of a time. They bust up their hotel rooms, get drunk, get high, trash the furniture with their bandmates, and party with groupies. But authors on tour are quieter <laughs> and more solitary souls. Between our appointments, we sit by ourselves in our rooms, nibbling like prairie dogs on room service sandwiches, or ironing our pants for the next reading, or watching Judge Judy. <laughs> Perhaps my most surreal book tour moment occurred a while back when I was alone in a hotel room in Dayton, Ohio, and while chan channel surfing, I came upon the quiz show Jeopardy at the exact moment that my name serviced. <laughs> he wrote the novel She's Come Undone, Alex Trebek stated. And in the torturous pause that followed, 
The three contestants stood there, lock-jawed and mute, itching, but just unable to press those thumbs to those buzzers. And so sitting on the edge of the bed in room 417 of the Westin Hotel, I uttered in a somewhat sheepish voice, who is Wally Lamb? <laughs> well, for the next several minutes, I'm going to try to answer that loaded question. Who is Wally Lamb? Well, like everyone else in this room tonight, I'm a product of where I came from and when I arrived. I'm a bona fide baby boomer, born in October of 1950 in the New England town of Norwich, Connecticut. Now, if you mention that you come from the nutmeg state, you're likely to conjure in people's minds images of leafy bedroom towns whose Tony residents commute to Manhattan, unwind at the country club, and send their kids to prep school. But mm -mm, I come from the other Connecticut. I come from east of the Connecticut River, Connecticut. We're more feisty than fashionable. We're more liverwurst than pate. Boston and Providence exert a greater pull on us than New York. And so we drop our eyes, root for the Red Sox, and say the word wicked as an adverb is in this example. There was a nor'easter last month, and we got a wicked lot of snow that was hard to shovel. <laughs> now, Norwich, which was once a thriving mill town and is now the next door neighbor of two huge Native American gambling casinos, is, as uh, Kate mentioned, the prototype for Three Rivers, the fictional town where I have now set four of the novels. Dominic Birdsey and his schizophrenic twin brother in I Know This Much Is True, and Calum Quirk, the husband of a school shooting survivor who struggles with PTSD in the hour I first believed. Parochial school student Felix Funicello in my comic novel, Wishing and Hoping, and Annie O'Day, the troubled outsider artist and childhood incest survivor of my latest novel, We Are Water, these five fictional characters could have been classmates of mine as a kid. Mid-century children raised by their working class families and strongly influenced by television. Howdy Doody, Shindig, All in the Family, The News. Each evening after supper, avuncular Walter Cronkite delivered the daily rise and fall, the worrisome advances of communists and cosmonauts, the Elvis and Beatles and hula hoop crazes, the assassination in Dallas, blood spilled in the South for a righteous cause and in Vietnam for a dubious one. And these characters, these alter egos, if you will, were shaped by turbulent times and the tube, and an Eastern Connecticut sensibility. And so was I. There were two institutions in my hometown that were unique. The Slater Memorial Museum, just off the town green, and at the southern border of town, the sprawling Norwich State Hospital, the largest facility for the mentally ill in Connecticut. Both exerted a powerful influence on me as a kid, and decades later exerted and still exert an equally powerful influence on my fiction. Located on the campus of the Norwich Free Academy, Slater Museum houses artifacts from no fewer than 35 centuries. 
the museum's jewel in the crown, its cast gallery of classical Greek and Roman sculpture, is alive with story. Niobe weeps for her children, whom the gods have slain. A serpent strangles writhing Laocoon, who, like Thomas Birdsey, and I know this much is true, bore the burdensome gift of prophecy. And on the museum gallery's back wall frieze, the three-dimensional battle between the Olympians and the giants depicts, in the tortured eyes of the vanquished, the waste and suffering of war. And those anguished eyes haunted me as a kid visiting the museum, and they became, over the years, the eyes of battered women and abused kids and the victims of bigotry and oppression and mental illness. In other words, my character's eyes. You know, the world is a very old place, and you're never going to be able to tell a completely original story. One of my mentors, the writer Gladys Swan, advised me shortly after I began writing fiction. The best you can do, Wally, is put your own spin on the ancient tales, those stories that have lasted because people need them to be told and retold. You want to write fiction? Go study myth. And so I read widely in the myths of the Greeks and the Romans and the stories of the African Kalahari and the Indian and Inuit cultures. I studied the Old Testament, the New Testament stories, and what I kept reading over and over were stories of power wielded both justly and unjustly by those in control, and tales of powerless protagonists who go searching for something that they think they want and along the way discover something far more valuable that they needed. Often that unexpected discovery is that kindness trumps cruelty and that forgiveness triumphs over vengeance, that love wins. Toward that end, my long-standing acquaintance with the Slater Museum gave me a leg up in the creation of my novels. Now, Norwich State Hospital came into existence in the early years of the 20th century as the draconian treatments of the mentally ill gave way to a more humane and progressive practice. Patients would get better if they were kept busy with work and recreation, the experts had come to believe. And so the hospital campus boasted a tannery, a working farm, a greenhouse, a theater, a baseball diamond, and an underground tunnel system through which patients were led to a central dining hall, dining hall for meals and socialization. Down below is the way we locals refer to Norwich Hospital, although it sat at the top of a long hill. As a kid sitting in the back seat of my parents' station wagon, I would sometimes ride past that place, staring out the window with equal measures of curiosity and dread. Crazy people live there. Look, there's one walking right now. In the early 1960s, lithium was developed at Norwich Hospital, given first to monkeys and then to men and women. By the mid-1960s, medication had replaced recreation as the treatment of choice, and a drugged psychiatric patient was more docile, less of a headache for the hard-pressed staff. In the mid-1960s, I was a high school student struggling with math and chemistry, but interested in English, history, and biology. 
My biology teacher, Mrs. Minky, had set up a genetics experiment in which we were to study heredity and characteristic through several generations of a single family of fruit flies. Now, the fruit fly is an ideal subject for such a study because of its manic life cycle. If memory serves, I think it's possible, if you're a fruit fly, to be born on Monday morning and romp with your grandchildren by Thursday afternoon. <laughs> we budding biologists were assigned tasks, and my task was to feed the flies. And so at the end of each school day, I would climb the stairs to the bio lab, open the glass jars that held our populations, drop into each a piece of rotten banana, and then screw the lids closed again. After completing my task, I would put my face to the jar and study for a few minutes the feasting and fornicating that would ensure the continuation of the species. So the genetics experiment proceeded on course until the fateful Friday afternoon when I climbed the stairs, opened the jars, dropped in the banana, and then forgot to replace the lids. <laughs> By Monday, the entire four-story building was infested, and to this day, I have near total recall of the bracing, fingers-wagging speech that Mrs. Minky delivered to me on the subject of scientific responsibility, all the while batting at fruit flies that swarmed around her. And then two years later, despite my shortcomings in the life sciences, I found myself in a senior class titled Honors Physiology. This class was taught by none other than Mrs. Minky's husband, <laughs> Mr. Minky. By mid-year, my classmates and I had become so proficient with scalpels and frog insides that we were presented with dead cats, one plastic-bagged corpse for each future physiologist. These specimens are expensive, Mr. Minky told us, as he yanked one stiff feline after another out of a big plastic barrel and presented to them, them to us like awards. These cats cost the school a lot of money, he said. Our having them was an honor. I remember unsheathing my body-bagged cat and staring down in fear and horror. Its fur was pungent with formaldehyde, its teeth and claws bared. It had died mouth open as if in mid-howl. A study of sheer terror in the instinct not to die, and it was mine for the rest of that semester. The following year, as a college freshman, I would sit in a darkened history class and watch black and white footage of blank-faced naked corpses being bulldozed by the Nazis into a communal pit. And that same semester, across campus, in a darkened art appreciation classroom, I would get my first glimpse projected from a slide onto a screen of Edvard Munch's famously disturbing painting, The Scream. And to this day, I see that trio of images superimposed, the face of my dead cat, stiff and supine before me on the lab table, and the death masks of Hitler's victims, and the visage of that tortured soul in Munch's painting who stands hands slapped against his face and screams in horror at, well, at what? Life? Death? The 20th century? The 21st? So Mr. Minky was a coffee drinker, 
and a man of misplaced faith. And as we were in honors class, he made the assumption that we would act honorably whether he was in the room or not. (laughs) And so it was his practice to leave us for long stretches of time with our dead cats and our worksheets and stroll down to the teacher's room while we engaged in higher level scholarship. But we weren't not honorable. We were kids, irresponsible, and I see in retrospect, intimidated by all that rigor mortis around us, all those silent screams of death. And so, in fear, we groped for comic relief. And it was I who proposed the idea of staging the mock wedding. To my surprise, the concept caught on. My peers and I abandoned honor and scholarship and the feline circulatory and digestive systems, and we threw our energies into the surreal nuptials to come. That Friday, Mr. Minky left the class on schedule at the beginning of the hour. With the coast clear, we dressed our corpses in their makeshift tuxedos and gowns. (laughs) Karen Barbarossa's cat was the bride, Jimmy Bradley's was the groom, and Connie Balecki had baked brownies for the reception. I was the officiating man of God, and unwisely I was performing the ceremony with my back to the door when all around me my classmates' eyes dropped to the floor and cats thunked back down against the lab tables. (laughs) Mr. Minky had made an unscheduled appearance, had crashed the wedding to pose the philosophical question, who started this foolishness? And so, with two scientific strokes against me and the blessings of both Mr. and Mrs. Minky, (laughs) I gave up my future brilliant career in life sciences and became, instead, first a high school English teacher, and later a college English teacher, and later a fiction writer, still examining life, of course, but doing so without the scalpels and the cadavers. You know, life. I think when you boil human existence down to the bare bones, reduce it to the lowest common denominator. What it comes down to, I think, is that we are governed by three basic instincts. One, the need to find food so that we won't survive, so that we won't starve. Two, the need to satisfy our sex drive so that we won't become extinct. And three, the need to understand and interpret the world around us on some intellectual level, to live deliberately, as Thoreau put it, as he peered out onto the waters of Walden Pond. And it's that third impulse, our hungering to figure out the world, that distinguishes us from the lowly fruit fly and the instinct-driven cat. And thus, unlike simpler life forms, we scratch the skulls that house our sizable brains, and we think. We read books go to museums, sporting events, we rent movies, surf the web, we pray to our God for grace and guidance, or we declare that God is non-existent. We go to college where we write, read, absorb, analyze, articulate, demonstrate, and emerge from the process educated because we hunger to understand the world and our place in it. And at times, understanding the world, making order out of chaos, seems insurmountable. I mean, how could the Holocaust have happened? Why do disease and racism 
and homophobia exist? Why does hunger live in the belly of a Haitian child, or for that matter, a child right here in Baltimore? How could that troubled young man have entered Sandy Hook Elementary School and opened fire on five and six-year-olds and their teachers? And man, these are tough questions. Unanswerable, most of them, no matter what your major was. And yet, we grope and we struggle to understand. And that struggle, I think, is what makes us human. And it becomes a noble struggle if we can accompany it by a rejection of the unacceptable status quo and an effort to change things for the better. But how to improve an imperfect world? That question, of course, has occupied the minds of scholars and scientists and artists and activists throughout time and has sometimes been the pebble in the shoe that becomes the unbearable pain that motivates good minds and generous hearts to bring their gifts to the table and fix things. And yet, just as human is our less than noble instinct to look away, to focus on what's new with Lindsay Lohan and the real housewives of wherever so that we might play avoidance with the pain and the struggles of the world and the community and the struggler sitting next to you and the struggles within. Avoidance, it's a cash cow. Marketers are waiting to seduce us away from our tough and unglamorous struggle to confront and improve the world because there's money to be made in smoke screens and cynicism. There are rating points to be won, tickets to sell, products to move off the shelves, Facebook posts to check, Twitter feeds to follow. And if you think I'm immune to all this, I'm not. I'm susceptible to the seduction of avoidance too. And so the need for subsistence, the need to satisfy our sex drive, the need to figure out the world and our place in it. It was the Danish philosopher, theologian Søren Kierkegaard who observed one of the central ironies of human existence when he said that life can only be lived forward but understood backward. I graduated from college 40-something years ago. Any college students sitting in this audience today? Raise your hands if you go to college right now. They're all home studying, I guess. <laughs> or what's, it's, what is it, Thursday night? Oh, it's keg night. All right. Uh, anyway, if today's college uh, students live moderately, practice safe sex, watch their cholesterol and intake levels, and obey the rules of the road and the law of averages, they will survive to the year 2054, 40 years from today. Now think about that for a minute. By 2053, the Hunger Game films will be American movie classics. <laughs> Beyonce and Jay-Z will be eligible for the senior citizen discount at Walmart, and Justin Bieber may need Viagra. I think it was Joni Mitchell, one of the troubadours of my generation, uh, who said it best when she sang, the seasons, they go round and round, and the painted ponies go up and down. We're captives on the carousel of time. I attended the University of Connecticut as an undergraduate from 1968 
1972. And the four years that I spent there were turbulent and seductive. It was an era in which world politics and cultural sea changes invited baby boomers like me to fight for social justice and party hardy. The sexual revolution had arrived, and marijuana smoke perfumed the dorm. The Vietnam War, the civil rights battle intensified, and the soundtrack of those years segued from this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius to by the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong to tin soldiers and Nixon coming, we're finally on our own. Prepare ourselves for the real world? Shit, man, we were going to fix the world. I'm on strike, I told my father over the phone after the invasion of Cambodia and the killings at Kent State. The hell you are, he shouted. You get back to class. But Richard Nixon and Walter Lamb Sr. were more or less interchangeable that spring. <laughs> and so I hung up the phone on the old geezer and stuck my fist in the air and joined the protest. Anyway, at the end of that wild four-year ride at UConn, I did not launch myself into the chaotic world at large. I took a U-turn, returned to Norwich, and taught English at the high school from which I had graduated. My first classes were the ones that no other teacher wanted, comprised of students who had been retained so many times that a few of them were my age, 21. <laughs> True story. The sweat hogs, they were fond of calling themselves. My plan was to win them over by releasing them from the prison that school had been for them until I got there. I would open their minds by making their education relevant. Well, the sweat hogs and I honeymooned for about a week, and, and then the day, approached, when, the day came when I approached Seth Jinks, a surly senior, and I asked him to please take his head off his desk and pay attention. Seth worked nights, and so he slept at school during the day. He raised his head, as I had asked, opened his bloodshot eyes, and said, why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> well, the class and I held our collective breath. I had no idea how to respond, and they had not gone over this at the School of Education. <laughs> but then, mercifully, Seth unfolded his long legs. He stood, and he ambled voluntarily out the door and up to the principal's office, thereby saving my teaching career. And so I remained at that school for the next 25 years. In the middle of my tenure at that school, without any premeditation, I sat down one day and I began to write fiction. This was during the summer of 1981, the exact same month that Jared, the first of our three sons, was born. Jared, who one time when he was a high school senior, I overheard complaining about the old geezer. I looked around to see if my father had arrived. <laughs> but no, he meant me. But at any rate, in ways that I have never fully understood, teaching and fatherhood and fiction writing are entwined at the roots. The seasons, they go round and round. The painted ponies go up and down. In the mid-1980s, the Reagan era, the state of Connecticut followed the national trend and concluded that its mammoth state hospital was non-cost effective. And so short and long-term patients were disgorged and the facility was closed down building by building over a 10-year span. Now there's an old Sicilian saying, 
e pue grandalore sono mute. Very great griefs are silent. Growing up, I knew and loved my Italian immigrant grandmother, my mother's mother, but not her husband, who had also emigrated from Italy. There were no pictures of him, and my mother never told me that her father had spent the last years of his life locked away in the Norwich State Hospital's forensic building. Illness had addled his brain and made him violent, and he had turned his ferocity against my grandmother, his wife of 50-something years. He had cut her on the neck and left her bleeding for dead on the kitchen floor. I found out about Grandpa's hospitalization when I was 16. Thirty years later, in the middle of writing I Know This Much Is True, I had an eerie dream. I was my childhood self, walking across a frozen pond when I saw at my feet, beneath the ice, Nana's face. She was alive, staring up at me, and there was a plea in her eyes. But a plea for what? I didn't know. And so the next day, on impulse, I left my writing desk, and I drove down to the abandoned state hospital and walked its ghostly grounds. And standing before the barred and broken windows of the forensic building that had housed a grandfather I had never known, I began to cry. And then I went home and created in the vacuum the character of my protagonist, Dominic Birdsey's grandfather. Once I had the old man's voice, his story spun out rapidly, and his unhappy, ego-driven life came to function as a cautionary tale for Dominic, the grandson who never knew him. So what do you call that? Fiction writing as wish fulfillment? I don't know, maybe. From and about my actual grandfather, there had been no record. There had been only silence. Anyway, one afternoon in the summer of 1992, the silence of our home was interrupted by the ringing telephone. Hello? Yes, this is Wally. Who is this? The caller said she was Oprah Winfrey. And I thought to myself, yeah, sure you are, honey. You're Oprah Winfrey, and I'm a porky pig. <laughs> but it really was she. There was no Oprah book club back then. She had tracked down my number, she said, because being an avid reader, a person whose life had been saved by reading when she was a kid, she had just finished my just-published first novel, She's Come Undone, and she wanted to thank me for having written it. Uh-huh, I said, no problem. <laughs> anyway, about six months later, I received another wonderful thank you for She's Come Under, this one in the form of a letter from a seriously mentally ill young man, a cutter, who had repeatedly tried to relieve his pain through self-mutilation. Here's an excerpt from that letter. I saved it. I didn't write to bear my soul or anything, Mr. Lamb, but when I was an inpatient at the Institute of Living for two and a half years, I read a lot and I thought a lot, and one of my ridiculous thoughts, fantasies, was that if I were to ever have a literary character dinner party, I would invite, being 27 but still pathetically immature, the characters of my favorite books, The Catcher in the Rye, Rabbit Run, 
the awakening. The sun also rises. Anyway, what I wanted to tell you is that I am extending an invitation to Dolores Price for that dinner party. I was not fat as a kid like Dolores, but when I got to the Institute of Living and they hit me with Thorazine, etc., etc., suddenly now I weigh 100 pounds more than I did when I was in college. And though I never tried to drown myself the way Dolores did, I was a razor man. The scene with the dead whale was amazing. I felt like she was fighting for my life, too. And when that circle bubbles up just before the whale surfaces at the end, I felt happy for her and really lifted. So thanks for writing your book and give my love to Dolores. Shalom, David F. P.S. Doesn't it just piss you off when people buy a book by Millie the Dog or Rush Limbaugh when they could be making a friend for life if they just met Dolores? I don't know. Fuck them. <laughs> I was sure it was going to be a bestseller, he says. <laughs> well, David's letter made me laugh and cry, as Dolores herself had done while I was discovering her story. And so I did a little detective work. And against all the odds, even in those pre-HIPAA law days, I found out David's last name and I got a hold of his telephone number. And I called him up to thank him for his brave and amazing letter and to tell him that I thought he too should pursue writing. He sounded painfully shy. He sounded shocked and uncomfortable to have heard back from me. And when I said I hope to meet him someday, he told me apologetically that although he might like to meet me too, he could never handle such an encounter. He was too shy, he said. He was too fat, too ill. But that initial exchange began a letter-writing friendship that exists to this day, 22 years later. Now, about six years after I received Oprah's call and David's letter, Miss Miss, uh, Miss Winfrey telephoned again. And this time she was calling me to say that she had chosen She's Come Undone for this book club thing that she had begun on her show. And so... Undone became the fourth book in her club and the first one written by a man. Two weeks later, my now seven-year-old book was a New York Times bestseller, number one, as David had predicted, correctly, as it turned out. A January of 1997 Boston Globe story about the novel's selection for Oprah's book club, the first by a male writer, best depicts the whirlwind of attention in the middle of which I suddenly found myself. Above a large photo of me, seated before my high school students, with one shoe untied, a look of befuddlement on my face, a headline asks incredulously, Wally who? (laughs) And that befuddled look intensified when a year later, my just-published second novel, I Know This Much Is True, was also chosen for Oprah's Club and also shot to the top of the charts. And these double whammy endorsements of my work filled me with gratitude and made me want to give something back to the world. But the telephone in my office would not stop ringing. And so I took to keeping an index card taped to the phone. On the card, I had written a polite, scripted refusal that I could read to fend off all manner of callers with good causes, lest I say, yeah, sure, okay, I'll do it, and end up giving away all of my writing and family time. But one day, the phone rang, and the caller on the other end was the librarian at York Correctional Institution, Connecticut's only prison for women. 
There had been two suicides, she said. There were cutbacks in psychiatric services and the women were struggling. Would I come and speak about using writing as a coping tool? Well, the problem was I couldn't find my damn index card. <laughs> okay, I said, I'll come. To gain access to the women of York Prison, you check in with the guard at the main gate, hang your laminated badge on your shirt pocket, walk through a metal detector, and then you pass through a series of ten doors, some of which slide open mysteriously after you stand and wait. At the prison school, I met my liaison, and we arranged the chairs in a circle. A uniformed officer bellowed orders from the corridor, and 30 inmates entered the room. Dressed identically in cranberry t-shirts and pocketless jeans, the women came in all colors, shapes, sizes, and degrees of gender identification. Most had shown up not to write, but to check out that guy who was on Oprah. I spoke. We did some exercises. I asked if anyone had questions about writing. These were the questions about writing. Yes? You met Oprah? <laughs> yes, I did. Yes? What's Oprah like? What's Oprah be wearing when she met you? At the end of my talk, one of the women stood. She thanked me for coming, and then she pitched me a curveball. And she was the scariest-looking woman in the, whole, in the whole room, by the way. Her nickname was Manhattan. <laughs> you coming back? She asked me. Thirty pairs of wary eyes were upon me, and my index card was back in the office. <laughs> uh, well, okay, I said, mainly because I'm such a chicken. You write something, I'll see you in two weeks. Any subject, two pages minimum, your drafts will be your ticket back into the workshop. And so at session two, 15 of the 30 chairs were empty. Stacy wanted praise, not feedback. Manhattan said well, she meant to be vague and unspecific. Her business wasn't necessarily Rita's business. Cassandra must have thought she was a guest on Oprah. She'd only written a paragraph, but man, oh man, did she want to talk. At age 55, Diane was the senior member of the group. For 90 minutes, she hunched forward, her fists clenched on her desktop, her suspicious eyes following my every move. Diane had written under the pseudonym Natasha, and she had exacted a promise for me before class that her work would never be read out loud. I predicted she'd be gone by the third session. But you know, it was during that third session, session that Diane Bartholomew couldn't keep her writing to herself. Her shaky hand went up, and she asked if she could share what she had written. And then, in a barely audible voice, she read a disjointed two-page summary of her really horrific life story. Paternal incest, spousal abuse, homicide, lawyerly indifference, and then in prison, parallel battles against breast cancer and the deep, dark depression that shuts down hope. But when she stopped, there was silence, a communal intake of breath. And then there was applause, a single pair of hands at first, joined by another pair, and then by everyone in the room. Diane had sledgehammered the dam of distrust, and the women's writing began to flow. I had meant to go just that one time, but 15 years later, and hundreds of workshops and thousands of highway miles later, I'm still going.
way back in 1981, the year that I became a father and a fledgling fiction writer. I could never have predicted all that has come to pass, good and bad. 9-11, Columbine, the rise of the ebook and the decline of the printed one, the ways in which technology and social media have transformed our world. I couldn't have predicted honey boo-boo for the life of me. <laughs> Nor could I have imagined what would happen one winter evening in 2008, shortly before my third novel, The Hour I First Believed, was published. I was reading from the book in front of a large and affable crowd at a place called the Mermaid Bar in downtown New Haven. And when I finished the Q&A and was getting ready to leave, a handsome, healthy-looking man in his early 40s came up to me and he said, hey, Wally, it's me. I wanted you to know that I finally took your advice. I've just enrolled in an MFA in writing program so that I can tell my story. Standing before me was my pen pal of all those years, David F., David Fitzpatrick. Miraculously, the right combination of therapy and psychotropic meds had allowed him to emerge at long last from the mental illness that had oppressed him and taken him out of the world for all those years. Hey, I met a wonderful woman, he told me that night. Amy and I are engaged. And then two Octobers ago, my wife and I attended David and Amy's wedding. It was a joyous and triumphant celebration, if ever there was one. And a few months after that, I read the galley of David's memoir about his harrowing journey into madness and his return to sanity. HarperCollins published David's book, it's called Sharp, at about the same time that Atria Books released a 20th, 20th anniversary edition of She's Come Undone. And at bookstores around the country, they sit in different sections, fiction and nonfiction. But occasionally, I will grab a copy of one and slide it next to the other as a symbol of how miraculous and wonderfully unpredictable that life can be, especially when we take on this imperfect world in hopes of making it a better one. You know, when my last novel, We Are Water, was published this past October, I went off on another book tour, 47 cities, the longest book tour I've ever done. And the pattern held. Strangers who had read my novels often approach and write me and ask me, how was it that I knew their lives, their flaws, their family secrets? And I have not known any of that. I've only gone to work each day and struggled to some, tell some useful truth by telling the lie that I am not myself, but some fictional other, a sarcastic fat girl trying to survive rape and her parents' divorce, or an angry and frightened brother of a schizophrenic identical twin, or the husband of a, of a, of a Columbine survivor, or in the case of We Are Water, no fewer than eight different people, four men and four women. Writing fiction invites me to climb out of my own skin, my own life, and to try on the lives of others so that I might move past the limitations of my own experience and better understand the un-me, the other. Because the value of writing, like the value of reading, 
lies in its ability to connect us one to another, to illuminate our similarities so that we might not forever keep focusing on our differences, black versus white, Anglo versus Latino, male versus female, Jew and Gentile versus, versus Muslim, well-heeled versus homeless. The politicians and the media may attempt to separate us into different factions and put us against one each other, but I reject those attempts because I am the other. The other is I. That's something I've learned by teaching and by sitting before the blank page and the blank computer screen and conjuring fictional others. It's kind of weird and kind of cool, you know? A grown man still playing with his imaginary friends. Go figure. But anyway, that's it. Thank you for listening. And your final Jeopardy category is American authors. So get your buzzers ready. The answer is this. He is a writer, a teacher, a dad, an old geezer, and with regard to his gig at the Pratt Free Library, damn glad that he came here. And the question is, you got it. Thank you. I want to I give a special thank you to our interpreters here. I, I kept sort of looking over to see if I had killed them yet. <laughs> thank you. Well, um, I think we have a little time for uh, question and answers. This is always my favorite uh, part where I get to, uh, to listen to you rather than having you hear me yap on and on. Um, so are there, uh, are there any questions that people have? Actually, we'd like everyone to grab to that microphone. Oh. Okay. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Line up, everybody. <laughs> She's coming down. This much is true. What's with the music titles? <laughs> yes, and uh, all all five of the novels and both of the prison anthologies that we've done, um, they all have a connection to music. Um, what's with the music? Different things for different books, but I, I, I've, I'm, a, I'm a music head. I play music all the time. I have a big, wide um, taste, and um, I play while I'm writing. I, I Sometimes the lyrics of music lead me in a direction with the stories. Um, with the last two, The Hour I First Believed, which is um, a phrase from Amazing Grace, and uh, We Are Water, which is a Patty Griffin song, I actually had the titles before I had the stories or the characters. Um, with She's Come and Done, and I know this much is true, is just the opposite. I had the, sto the whole story done, I didn't know what to call it uh, with both of those. Uh, with She's Come Undone, there was, there's an old, there was an old 1970s group called the Guess Who, and uh, the, one of their songs is called Undone. Uh, and, um, and I had the, the novel written, and um, I didn't have a title for it, and I'm barreling down the, the hill on my way to class when I was teaching high school 
And all of a sudden, that song came on the air. She's come undone. And I got, so I got so excited that I thought that was a good title. I went running into my homeroom. Well, you know, American high school kids in homeroom at 7.15. I said, hey, kids, you know, what do you think of this for a title? She's come undone. And they're like, yeah, whatever, Mr. Lamb. Yeah, okay, all right, that was great. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's sort of my nod to um, how much music uh, is a, a part of my creative process. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Julie Richard, one of my high school students who now lives in Baltimore. So good, and she looks exactly the same. I do. It's us now. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Um, I just wanted to mention, as phenomenal of a writer as you are, you are an absolutely phenomenal teacher. Thank you. And Thank you. touched generations of lives. And uh, Tosh just texted me that she's reading your Christmas novel. Oh, is that right? As, as, yeah. as I posted, I'm watching. I'm standing here watching Wally Lamb, and Tosh wrote, "I'm reading his book right now." <laughs> so. I, I should start singing the the Twilight Zone theme song at this point. <laughs> yeah. It's so, so good to see you, Julie. Just, Thank you for coming. I just wanted to say hello. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Julie and I are, are uh, she was one of my favorite students w uh, way back when, but um, she and I, like many of my former high school kids, uh, we, we've become uh, you know, Facebook friends. And I look at these people and it's like, and you know, they have pictures of their kids and a couple of cases their grandkids, uh, which I don't have yet. And it's like, man, if these, if these high school kids are middle-aged, how the hell old must I be at this point? <laughs> Awful, yeah. But anyway, I'm delighted you came, Julie. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, she was a little saucier in person than, uh, you know, than uh, she had, she's had a little bit of an irreverent uh, sense of humor, which, of course, I loved. Uh, uh, she's very, very genuine, very, you know, very, uh, you know, just very fun to be with. Yeah, I liked, I liked her a lot. What was that? Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. Oprah started here, right, right in, uh, right in this city. Yes, I, f I had forgotten that. Thanks for reminding me. So I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about water and how you use the symbolism of water in, in different ways in mm -hmm. in your books. I mean, just in We Are Water, it's used both in two ways, both with the flood and then also um, with the ocean mm -hmm. um, at the end. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite places, probably my favorite place of all, um, is um, a beach called Long Nook Beach. It is uh, in North Truro uh, on Cape Cod. Um, we go back there again and again. And um, there are two scenes uh, in, in We Are Water that take place at Long Nook Beach. And, and there also was a scene from She's Come Undone. Um, I, I, live, I live about an hour away from the ocean. When I was a kid, I grew up about a, maybe half an hour away from the ocean. And it's always had a pull on me. Um, and um, you know, I've traveled out, out in the West. Um, and I know some, for some people, it's the desert. For some people, it's the, um, you know, the, the, the mountains. For me, for me, it's, it's water, and particularly, particularly moving water. Also, when I get stuck while I'm writing, um, which happens 
a lot. Um, I usually get away from the computer and go someplace where I can hear running water, either either a stream in the back in the in the back, uh, you know, behind our yard, or um, there's a dam not far from us. And sometimes I will drive down to the ocean and just watch the the waves rolling in. I don't know what it is, but there's something that um, there's something sort of cosmic about the ocean. It makes you feel small, and um, I like that. I like that that reminder that you know you're not the be all and end all of everything. My question is about your writing habits and if you have a place you go to, if you have a certain time, how much you dedicate, and also if you have a community that supports you. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the community. I, I work in two writers groups. Um, I, I started late as a writer. I was 30 when I began to write fiction, and then I entered a program at Vermont College, a Master of Fine Arts program, um, and that's what introduced me to the workshop where you give feedback and you get feedback on works in progress. And that sort of changed my whole way of teaching writing, uh, both at high school and then at the University of Connecticut. Um, so writing groups have always been a part of my experience. Now, the writing workshop that I run at the prison um, is really, it, it does the same thing. And I bring my work to the women and they give me feedback. They love doing that. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, I, and I give them feedback on their stuff. Um, so that, that sort of give and take, being able to prescribe for other writers makes you a better and sharper writer as well. Um, and what was the first part of the question? Your habits, if you have a place, if you have a time, how you, yeah. how you set aside your writing time. I used to write at home, and then um, when our kids started to get active with you know, social life and you know, other kids around the house and stuff, that was right about the time when, um, uh, when the Oprah stuff started happening. And so I rented um, the second floor of a two-family house in Willimantic, and that's that's been my office since the 90s. Um, I have a uh, uh, my landlady downstairs is a woman named Bunny, and uh, she is in she's about 86, 87, and for an octogenarian, she is alarmingly uh, flirtatious. Uh, <laughs> she once she once wanted to know if I had knocked on her door downstairs, and I said, well, no, Bunny, and she said, oh, she said, you know, um, I was vacuuming, and I said, yeah, and she said, she had come up to give me some gingerbread, so I'm holding the gingerbread, and she says, yeah, I was vacuuming, I thought I heard you knocking on the door, and I said, no, and she said, you know, some women vacuum in the nude, <laughs> so here's the gingerbread in my hand, and I, you know. <laughs> But anyway, she's a character. Um, I, I, write, I, write, I write in the office. I have an assistant who comes in. He's a grad student um, at UConn. And he comes in and helps me with the business stuff in the late afternoon. Um, I write in the morning into the early afternoon. Um, usually I can go to about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, get an early start. Um, and then my creative brain just sort of shuts off at about that time. Um, on a bad day, it'll shut off at about 1 o'clock instead of 2 o'clock, at which point I go up, make myself a peanut butter sandwich, and watch Days of Our Lives. Um, so I told my cousin, who is a UConn alum, that uh -huh. I was coming tonight, and she's like, wow, Lamb, I've seen him a bunch of times. I was like, <laughs> all right. Um, I just wanted to ask, what was the most difficult lesson for you to transition from teaching to writing? What was the most difficult lesson? 
to transition from teaching to writing? Oh, to transition from teaching to writing. Um, I think the loneliness of, of, of writing full-time. Um, I love to be around people, um, but I can't do that and get my work done as well. I, I, went, I shifted from, from high school to college teaching because on paper it looked like I was going to have a lot more time to do the writing and balance both. But I found out that that was, that was only on paper. It didn't work out. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was hard, it was hard to transition. I remember when I was just about starting, I know this much is true. I actually, I hadn't started it yet. I was having trouble starting it. And I had, I had a leave of absence. I had advance money. Um, my wife was teaching then. She went off to school. This was right after Labor Day. My kids went off to school. It was just me and the cats and my new computer. And I put it on. I said to myself, OK, Wally, you wrote that first book. You must be able to do it again. Couldn't think of a damn thing. You know, This went on for about a week, nothing. A month, now I'm really getting scared. I'm thinking of giving that advance money back. Um, I started. It got so bad that I went up to the attic, and you know those, you know those wooden paddles with the elastic and the little ball attached. I got really good at that. Um, you know, the doorbell would ring, and it would be religious missionaries. And you know, in my past life, I would say, "Oh yeah, well, thank you, but I'm really busy." Okay, I'll take the magazine. Now it was like, "Come in, come in, come in." You know, um, it, this has got. It got so bad. This is how bad it got. And it's only because you're a friendly crowd that I'm going to tell you this story. It's kind of embarrassing. But I invented something called the paper clip game, whereby I sat in my office with uh, paper clips in my palm. And uh, the object was to flick them so that they hit the window, right? Uh, and um, this is, it got so bad that I had teams in my mind, I had playoffs. And, and then, and then, in the midst of this horror, um, about a month and a half into it, I get this little, it was almost like a little movie in my head, maybe 10 seconds, and I see this guy going down the road in a pickup truck, and it's the middle of the night, and I'm thinking, okay, who is this dude? Um, why is he out there in the middle of the night? What's going on? And who does he love? What is he, who does he hate? Why can't he sleep? And that became Dominic. And I know this much is true. And there is a scene, I think it's chapter 27 in the book, where Dominic is driving down a sleepy road in his pickup truck, and he begins to he begins to nod off, even though he's out there because he can't sleep. Um, so you know, go figure. That's a, that's how that started. Uh, but yeah, the uh, you know the loneliness factor. Yeah. If you if you want to if you're during the during your workday if you want to talk to somebody you got to make them up first. You know? <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Um, the first time that I read She's Come Undone and I fell in love with your writing, I distinctly remember feeling, how is it possible that this man knows so well what it's like to be a woman? Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, I was hoping you might comment about what it's like to write female characters from a man's perspective. Yeah, sure. I, get, I do get that question a lot. A lot of people say, oh, I had to keep looking at the book jacket picture on the back and all that kind of stuff. Uh, some people early on thought that my wife actually wrote the book and I was the front man. <laughs> and then other people, because Dolores is obese in the story, other people were sort of like shocked that you know, my wife was thin, you know? Um, but um, I think probably there, there, you know, there are a lot of different aspects of why 
you know, I can do it. Mostly it's revision and the fact that I work in those writers groups and, um, you know, whenever I hit false notes in a female voice, um, the women of the group are never shy about speaking up. But also, um, the, uh, I, I grew up with sisters, um, older sisters and girl cousins who lived next door. And they were all bossy. I was the, <laughs> I was the nerdy youngest of the group. And they never really wanted to play with me, nor did I really want to play with them. But the only other boy on McKinley Avenue growing up was Vito Signorino, and he used to throw rocks at me. Um, and or, or during winter snowballs, or one memorable time, a rock inside of a snowball. And you know, my, my mother said, I don't want you to play with Vito anymore. And it's like, who the hell wanted to play with him? I just wanted to evade him, you know? But anyway, I was because of that, I was sort of cast in the role of the observer to all of you know, all of my cousins and my sisters kind of weird, you know, they had games of pretend and all that kind of stuff. You know, I remember one time I, I walked in the kitchen and my sister Vita is on her knees in front of the ironing board and my sister Gail is ironing her hair. That was during the share, you know, <laughs> uh, phenomenon. But anyway, um, I will I one this one time. Um, I was actually enlisted in one of their games. Uh, um, they were, we had they had found some old curtains or something up in the attic, and so my sisters and cousins were, uh, were playing a game that they invented called Kingy Boy. Now, um, I not only was invited into this game, but I was Kingy Boy, and um, and I, yeah, I was the, I was the titular character, right? Anyway. All I had to do was sit on the floor. They were harem girls, you know, wrapped up in all this net stuff. And I had to sit cross-legged on the floor with a terry cloth towel wrapped around my head like a turban. And um, my sisters and cousins are dancing and undulating around me and going, you know, kingy boy, kingy boy. And I'm thinking to myself, this is so stupid. But then it got, very, it got a little in, more interesting when... Um, my sister Gail said to me at the end, um, they must have been like prepubescent or something, because they, because my sister Gail said, um, don't tell Ma that we were playing this. So then, of course, it got a little more interesting. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, I, you know, I, I, I kept that promise. I didn't tell my mother, but I told Father Ziegler when I made my, my very first confession. <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. These are my These are my sins. I uh, I told I told I called my sister a big creep, um, and I told two lies, and I played kingy boy. <laughs> and father said, "Okay, you know, you could just see the shadow of him, you know, in the confessional." He said, "Okay, well, for your confession, for your penance, I want you to say three our fathers and three our. You played what?" <laughs> So I guess my answer to your question at the, at the root is, if you grow up with sisters and cousins like mine, you can write She's Come Undone. Thank you. We'll take maybe a couple more questions, and then we'll call it a night. Yeah. Yeah. Right, um, just uh, what was said in the intro is how you write characters that you remember exactly where you were when you read about them. Yeah. And, um, the friend that just asked the question is who introduced me to your writing with uh, I know this much is true back when we were in college years and years ago. Uh -huh. And so I came down tonight from New York to listen to you speak huh. because we love you, you as a writer. But I, can't, I came in today from New York. We could have sat on the train exactly. together. <laughs> but with, with 
the, I guess, the level that the characters that you write, how how great they're written. Have you ever thought of bringing them to life? Is there any talks of bringing them to life? Because just so that I know that we're a well-read crowd, but to bring it to the masses, because you talk about a lot of issues with race relations and different things like that. Is there any talks of bringing them to life? Bringing them to life as film? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, She's Come Undone, and I know this much is true, have both uh, been optioned and then sold to the movies. She's Come Undone is with Warner Brothers. I know this much is true is with uh, 20th Century Fox. And they have been in something called development hell for years and years. Um, I call it my, my hall of shame. There are all, the, all these different producers and directors and actors um, who have flirted with the material. Um, so far, nothing has ever come of it. I know We Are Water is being shopped around now in, in Hollywood. Um, but um, I was delighted this past September to fly out to Seattle um, because a woman had worked for two years to adapt She's Come Undone as a stage play. And, um, and so I went to the premiere, and there are these characters that, you know, I cooked up in my head like 20-something years ago, suddenly coming to life through these performances. It was, it was, it was quite bizarre and quite exciting for me, and they did a really good job. They, uh, the woman who played Dolores nailed it, and she was, you know, she was a young uh, theater major graduate, um, and um, and she took that character within two hours on the stage from age four to age 40, and. Um, you know, it was a really credible performance. Um, so that's as far as it's gotten so far. Um, I think maybe a little bit down the line, I'm committed to do two more books now. Uh, but after that, I think what I might do is um, take some of the writing from the women at the prison and turn that, their stuff into dramatic monologues and, um, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe do something for the stage with them. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming. So in several of your books, and especially in We Are Water, a lot of your artistic characters um, wrestle with madness and insanity mm -hmm. and some sort of mental health ailment. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found really interesting in We Are Water was how the creative process seemed to really be born in several of the characters during these times of madness. Mm -hmm. And as a creative person yourself and an artist yourself, I wonder if any of that is a bit of self-reflection and if you find yourself losing, your, losing yourself as you're writing and maybe not knowing where some of these wonderful ideas are coming from. Yeah, I don't, I don't examine it too closely because I'm afraid to, I think. Um, I, you know, I do, I become these other people and they, and when I'm reading from one of my books to an audience like this, I'm more that person than this person. And um, I can, what, I, what I'm grateful for is that I can go in and out of it. I know, you know, some people who are afflicted can't. Um, but there is a kind of a madness to the creative process, at least from, at least my part. Now, um, it doesn't always happen. I'm grateful when it does happen because it's what's on the page is more real than my life around me, um, and that's when a lot of this, a lot of the best stuff gets written. Um, but it's sort of unusual, um, um, 
And uh, like I say, I don't want to over-examine it because I don't want it to go away. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there is a kind of a there's a kind of a madness to the creative process for me. Um, I don't know. Do you do you create? Um, <laughs> I, I'm a writer, and I definitely find myself that. I'm more impressed with my writing when I'm not sure how I got there uh -huh. than I am when I'm really deliberate in yeah. what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. I have a son. Um, I, I have three sons, but one of them is a slam poet. He's a performance mm. poet, and um, he's gotten really good at it. And he and his team, they, uh, they're down in New Orleans. Um, they're, um, they, ju they won the national championship this year, and he does a lot of solo stuff as well. And when I go to his performances... It's like he's some somebody else when he's up on the stage. He's you know he's kind of quiet and shy. And I've heard of actors who are like this a lot too. That um, once they once they go into performance mode, yeah, it's like they 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 transform somehow. And he's very much like that. I I sit there watching him sometimes and I go, damn, you know, <laughs> who are you? Uh, but but he's good. He was my opening act on book tour. Uh, and it was really fun, really cool. Yeah. Okay, so um, shall we call it a night? And. Uh